this uh, weekend, particularly yesterday, uh, some of you may have gotten the news and saw the, uh, the particular tragic news uh, with the airplane show in Dallas, where two airplanes and particularly a huge bomber from World War II was flying to show uh, its abilities uh, and to bring memories. Uh, and lo and behold, a smaller plane collided into this big bomber. And uh, both airplanes destroyed, pilots dead. Uh, how sad for an airplane that made it through World War II in real combat and made it back home to the US, made it safe, and still in operational abilities 80 years later, and flying to display uh, for others who would watch, not to fight, but simply to display, and to end up in destruction. What a tragic news. There are things in this life that start really well, and keep going really well for a while. But then at the end, something happens and things go south. This morning, the passage we are going to look at wants to assure us that there is no going wrong for those who are in Christ. The passage we're about to look at and the message this morning is entitled, No More Condemnation. And this is good news that will last forever for those who are in Christ. Now let me just say for anyone who would hear the words, no more condemnation, that may sound a little puzzling. Just like a person who does not have any financial crisis going on around him would receive a letter in the mail and, and get the words, no more bankruptcy for you. What would that person think? This must be a joke. Or at best, a mistake. I mean, I don't need to hear this news. I'm not in, in a financial crisis. But if a person who actually was on the verge of bankruptcy... If a person was actually on the verge of not being able to pay the loans and the bank was already threatening, sending the letters, threatening that they're coming to take over everything that they have, if a, such a person receives the news in the mail, no more bankruptcy, that person would receive the news very differently. It'd be a news that would have a lot more gravity, gravitas, weightiness. Or imagine a person who is battling a life-threatening cancer. Hearing the news, no more cancer. The news would be received with such greater impact and personal meaning and relevance. The message that God has for us this morning is no more condemnation. And I wonder if these words 
would cause you to be moved in any way. Let's look at God's word in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. We are working our way through the, this marvelous, uh, wonderful book of Romans. The Apostle Paul says the following in chapter 8, verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. What a great word of assurance. Let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching of His word and our hearing as we hear from Him. Gracious Father, You have given us Your Son and You have given us Your Holy Spirit. We pray that by your Spirit you would open our minds to understand your Word, and that you would enable me to preach this Word with clarity and the conviction and the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We are entering the last lap in the second major section of the book of Romans. There is one way to interpret chapter 8 that in my view is misguided. Some Bible teachers take chapter 8 to be the recipe for victorious Christian life in contrast with a defeat that has been described in chapter 7. One reason for this view is the significant number of references to the Spirit in chapter 8 and the lack of them in chapter 7. In light of this difference, some Bible teachers uh, believe that chapter 8 distinguishes between carnal Christians and spiritual Christians. You may have heard about that distinction. It's not a very good distinction. 
They think that chapter 8 is the solution for how to live victoriously the battle with sin in a way that chapter 7 fell short. In my view, this interpretation is flawed. And the text we read today is not so much a contrast between chapter 7 and chapter 8. The text we read, today, we read today aims not to equip believers for the battle against sin, but rather to give us assurance of our life with God. This chapter tells us that Christians have various reasons why we struggle with the assurance of being believers. Rightly, when we fail in our fight with sin, uh, it often tends to raise questions in us if we consistently fail in our battle with sin. A question that often comes up is, am I even a Christian? I mean, after you, we've heard what Paul went through in chapter 7 and his battle with sin, and you realize, that's me, you wonder, am I even a Christian? Another reason why people and Christians can struggle with the assurance of salvation is when Christians face suffering and death, approaching death. Doubts can begin to, to creep into our lives, cause us to wonder if the promises of God will hold true in our suffering. When things in life collide and what we thought would be the case for us end up being destroyed. And we wonder, will what God promised us remain true? Those who are approaching the end of life physically here on earth, approaching the grave, wondering, can I really hold on to the promise of God beyond the grave? So chapter 8 is first and foremost written to help believers regain confidence in the assurance that what God started, He will finish. And the message this morning can be stated simply, and this is what the message is trying to persuade us of. Let me, last night, Ezra asked me an interesting question. He said, Daddy, when you preach, are your sermons like persuasive essays? He's working through learning to write persuasive essays. I told him, absolutely. And here is what this particular passage is trying to persuade us of. The certainty of our right standing with God is found in the new life from the Spirit. The certainty of our right standing with God is found in the new life from the Spirit. This passage that we've read has three parts, three sections, and each of them uh, present a case, a reason. Uh, so the three points would be the condemnation is gone, the new life is vastly different than the old life, and thirdly, the new life is certain. The condemnation is gone. The new life is vastly different than the old life. And lastly, the new life is certain. Let's see how Paul brings these together, persuading us, seeking to 
encourage us to, to grow in our confidence, in our certainty that our, our sure standing, our right standing with God is found in the new life from the Spirit. Point number one, the condemnation is gone. This is how Paul begins this, this section of the book. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a claim. The question is, how do we know that and why? The how do we know that is show, it presents itself in verse 2. And then the why, that's a case, it's in verse 3 and then verse 4. How do we know that the condemnation is gone? We look at what Paul says in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. As I looked at verses 1, 2, and 3, and 4, I had trouble understanding why Paul is referencing the life that the Spirit brings to replace the law of sin and death as an evidence or as a support for the news that there's now no more condemnation. If I was Paul, I would just jump from verse 1 to verse 3. He, in verse 1, he declares there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And verse 3 would tell us why that's the case. Uh, for, for God did what the law could not do because he was weakened by the flesh. God sent his son in the likeness of human flesh and condemned him. So simply, if Paul simply said that, that would be sufficient. But Paul tells us more. He tells us how we can know that the condemnation is gone for those who are in Jesus. How can we know that this is a sure reality? The evidence is verse 2. It's a life the Spirit brings to us to replace the power and authority of sin and death in us. So that instead of being subjects to the law of sin and death, the Spirit of life freed us to life. The condemnation that all humanity is under is not some generic condemnation. It's not mere general guilt. Oh, you have a ticket on your record. There's something that's not right on the record, but you know, you can just continue to live on with life. Yeah, your insurance may be a little higher if it's a speeding ticket. Or you may not get the ability to get the right kind of employment if you have a crime on the record. But life goes on. That is not the condemnation that Romans has been telling us about. If you've been with us through this book, all the way at the beginning of chapter 1, you might remember, and if you were not with us, uh, let me let you know what the condemnation is about. The condemnation that is in view here is the condemnation unto death. This is how chapter 1 ends. After describing a list of sins in chapter 1, Paul says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. 
ruthlessness, disobedience, gossip, slander, and a host of other sins. That those who do such things deserve to die. The condemnation that Paul has been telling us about throughout this book, this entire book, is condemnation unto death. It's not simply to spend some time in prison. It's more like the condemnation of the death sentence. To such a condemnation, to such a people who have had that particular nuance of condemnation, this news comes. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And the first detail about that condemnation is there's now life instead of death. Do you understand the logic of verse 1 and verse 2? Why Paul would would tell us the benefit that we get from this announcement of no more condemnation. Why? How do we know that? Because the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Unlike prisoners condemned to receive the death penalty and just waiting for that to be executed, for us, spiritually, mankind is already dead. We're not just waiting to, to be dead. Spiritually, we are already dead. So in order for this condemnation to be removed, the Spirit has to free us from the power and the authority of sin and death. And this is what the law of the spirit of life has already done in those who place their trust in Jesus Christ. The spirit brings life to us. He replaces the power of sin or the law of sin, which is the same idea, the, the, the power of the authority of sin and death with the power and authority of life. And Paul wants to assure believers that the Spirit has already done this work in all those who are in Christ. Now, the language of no condemnation is a language of justification. It's a negative way of saying you are justified. You're no longer condemned. But Paul wants to tell us here in chapter 8 that justification always comes together with regeneration, never apart. Our right standing with God always comes together with the new life that the Spirit of God brings. These cannot be separated. Oh, friends, this means that in saving us, God is not working merely outside of us. That's justification. In justification, God works outside of us. God works in Christ. God condemned Christ in our place. Justification is the work that God does outside of us. 
But our salvation is not limited only what God does outside of us. It also includes what God does in us, inside of us. And that work is called regeneration. It is God who by the Spirit brings the news and the benefit of Christ's death and resurrection. He brings that news that was acted outside of us and he applies it in us. And when he applies that work to us, he actually replaces death with life. If the Spirit of God does not free us from the law of sin and death, we are still under condemnation. Why is our condemnation gone? Because God condemned Jesus in our place. This is what verse 3 tells us. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh. Friends, this is why all those who are united to Jesus, all those who are in Jesus by faith, experience no more condemnation over them because Jesus fully took that condemnation on their behalf. Friends, this is the amazing news of the, of the gospel that we as Christians proclaim. This is why we call people to repent and trust in Jesus for salvation, because when they do so, they are united with Christ. And when we are united with Christ, there's now no more condemnation. But notice what is the supreme purpose why God condemned Jesus in the flesh. The purpose is in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, what is the righteousness requirement of the law? Bible teachers debate, and there could be various reasons uh, for this phrase. What is the righteous requirement of the law? Some believe that it's referring to, the, to all the commandments that God has given to His people. Everything God's Word commands us. The righteous requirement of the law in, in a singular totality. Others believe that the righteous requirement of the law in the book of Romans refers to the fulfillment of the law, which in Romans 13 is explicitly summarized in the commandment to love one another. Read Romans 13.8, where Christians are commanded to love one another and thus fulfill the law. But another meaning of this phrase, the righteous requirement of the law, could also simply be that to those who break the law, the law demands death. So the righteous requirement of the law for lawbreakers is death. And God condemned Jesus in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law, namely death to the lawbreakers, would be fulfilled or applied or credited to us. That could be what's going on in this passage. Reality, either of the three meanings uh, would not be off track. This is just my personal conviction of how I think this particular phrase is used here. That it's referring to the righteous requirement of death 
for lawbreakers because this has been the issue from the beginning of the book of Romans. Those who break God's law, those who oppose God, those who, who rebel against him, the condemnation is death. But who are the beneficiaries of the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us? Who is the us? Notice how verse 4 ends. That the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Do you see how justification is tied with regeneration? You cannot separate these. The benefit of justification is given to those who also experience regeneration. And this is significant because we cannot promote simply the gospel that justifies and yet leaves us dead in our sins. Justification always comes with regeneration. We should never separate these. How do people seek to separate these today? Friends, offering the assurance of being right with God apart from teaching and focusing the need for the new birth or the reality of the new birth. This is what makes Christian conversion so different than conversion to Islam or any other religion. In other religions, if a person decides to convert to, their, to that specific religious thought or system, the person must decide to begin following, agreeing with, and simply following the tenets of that religion. It's, it's a conversion that is ultimately summarized in one's decision for that new belief system. It really boils down to what man decides to do. But in Christianity, and for Christian conversion to take place, it is not sufficient that man makes a decision or, or decides to follow a different path. Something else must be playing or acting. God must work to bring a change inside our hearts, to free us from the domain of sin and darkness and death and to bring in us the freedom of the life of God in our souls. So that instead of sin and death ruling inside us, now life from God begins to, to rule in us. And truly there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ who have experienced this change of heart. That's why when we share the gospel, when we when we preach a good news and when we try to have conversations with non-Christians, we're not just fishing for a decision. We're not just fishing for some sort of human response, though that response must be there. And we must plead with people to respond. But it's not merely the human response. 
So Paul's first point is to assure us that condemnation is gone for those who are in Christ. And how do we know that? Because justification always comes with regeneration. And the life of the Spirit of God inside of us is the evidence, is the proof that justification has truly been applied to us, that there truly is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. But the question is, well, what does this new life look like? What is this new life that the Spirit brings? And this is a point of the second section in our text. The new life is vastly different than the old life. We see this in verses 5 through 8. Now, Paul wants to equip us to know the difference between the old and the new. The contrast between these two options, again, has been misunderstood to, to be a contrast between Christians who live by the flesh and Christians who live by the Spirit. But again, I want to submit to you that this contrast is misguided here because the new life that is presented here in contrast with the old life is a contrast between those who are unregenerate and those who are regenerate. Let's see why this is significant. The, the contrast that Paul presents here is between those who are not Christians even though some may call themselves to be so, and those who truly are Christians. The difference is seen first and foremost in a person's mind, what, what they set their minds on. Look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's a way of saying, what do you care most deeply about? What do you think about most deeply? Christians and non-Christians, or th those who are regenerate and those who are not regenerate, have a different foundation for what motivates all their thoughts and thinking. The power of death and the power of sin rules our thoughts and our decisions and our desires. Because all our thoughts, decisions, and desires are wrapped around, centered in some way, connected to the center of our lives, which is our flesh. For those who are regenerate, our thoughts, thinking, desires, cares are connected in some way, ultimately, to the new center of our lives, which is the new life that the Spirit has brought to us through Jesus. I've heard sometimes even Christians say things like, well, I know that God says this in his word, but I'm going to do it anyway. Sometimes we get this, we get tangled up in our Christian walks to go back to the old life where people do ultimately what they want to do and not what God wants to do. They might know about the Word of God, they might know what God says, and yet at the end of the day, they're going to choose to do their own thing. As Christians, we can fall in those traps. But in, in this passage here, in these verses, 
Paul is not dealing with the, this, the contrast between Christians and carnal Christians. He's dealing with those who are not Christians and those who truly are. And Paul wants to make us know and be reminded that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Look at verse 7 and 8. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, friends, this is the, the description of the unregenerate mind. At the end of the day, no matter how many so-called good things a person may want to do or try to do, at the end of the day, the mind that is set and, and connected to the center of the flesh is not happy with anything that God has to say. If anything, it's hostile, always contradicting God's law, unwilling to submit to God's word. Not only is it unwilling to submit to God's word, it cannot submit to God's word. At the end of the day, those who are in the flesh simply cannot please God. Well, friends, I wonder if this morning, if you're here this morning and you realize this actually characterizes me more than anything else, that you are still ruled in your life by an ultimate desire, by an ultimate thought process that wants to do what you want to do, that ultimately boils down to what you want to do. I just wanted to remind you that God's word says you're probably still in the flesh. And this should be a wake-up call. You may call yourself whatever you want to. But this is not about carnal Christians and spiritual Christians. This is about those who are regenerate and those who are not. The life that the Spirit brings is very different than the life of the old flesh. Friends, if you are visiting with us this morning, and perhaps you're not sure if you're a Christian, ask yourself, are you seeking to make decisions in your life based on God's Word, based on what He reveals to us in His Word, or what you want to do ultimately? Do you care most deeply about God and His reputation, His glory, that His image in you would be a right reflection of Him? Or do you ultimately just care about satisfying and pleasing yourself? What do you care about most deeply? What do you think about most deeply? If you're not sure, it is possible that you're still living in the flesh, ruled by your sinful nature, corrupted by humanity's rebellion against God. And it doesn't matter if you were baptized when you were young. It doesn't matter if you've had some religious experience at some point in the past. At the end of the day, those who are ruled by the flesh. Look at the outcome where they end up. Look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. This is the condemnation. This is a way of saying, for those who still are, are living their lives, had their lives centered around their flesh, they're still under condemnation. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The outcome of, of setting your life on, 
or your mind on what the Spirit brings to us is life and peace. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Again, the focus of this section is not to contrast carnal Christians versus spiritual Christians. It's to actually contrast those who are not truly Christians and those who truly are. That new life is vastly different than the old. And we must be clear about that. In the way we preach the gospel, we must have the certainty and the confidence that when we share the news about Jesus and when we call people to repent and trust in Christ, we must have the confidence that it's the Spirit of God who can regenerate a person who hears that news and bring a new life in them. And the evidence of that new life will be repentance and faith. It will be the, the fruits of that newness of life. Without that newness of life, there's no evidence that the condemnation has been removed. The new life that the Spirit brings us is vastly different than the old life. But the new life is not only different. Paul wants to tell us the new life is certain. And this is the last point he brings to us in the last section. Verses 9 through 11. After debunking the mishmash of those who might think that the, the two lives can coexist together, after Paul shows us how different, how vastly different these two lives are, Paul wants to make sure you understand that you walk away from this not so much with uncertainty but with certainty. In this last section, Paul wants to assure believers that they are no longer in the flesh. Look at the, at the beautiful confirmation in verse 9. You, however, you believers, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Oh, friends, here to be in the flesh does not mean to be in your physical body. Here the word flesh means the, the corrupt sinful nature. And to, to be in this life of the flesh would be to be ruled by, to live our lives centered around this corrupt nature. But Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh. A change has taken place. When the Spirit of God comes in you, that change has taken place. You're not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. And I wonder if you notice, according to this verse... Being in the flesh and being in the spirit are mutually exclusive. You're not in both. You're in one or the other. Does this mean that sin's presence is eradicated from our lives? No. Sin's presence still remains in our human bodies, just as chapter 7 told us. And in chapter 10, in verse 10 actually, Paul reminds us that actually in our physical bodies, we still experience death because of sin. Paul reminds us, no, sin's presence is not eradicated from our physical bodies. Even though we're no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. This is good news. This means that the tension between the spirit and the flesh is not a perfect or perfected tension that has now been all absolved, that there's 
no more tension between the spirit and the flesh inside of us. Sin as a presence remains in us. That's why death still remains in our bodies. But at the same time, if this is good news because the spirit of God in us produces life in us. That's why Paul says that in verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Oh, friends, sin remains in our body, even for us who are Christians. But the reign of sin, the rule of sin, the rule of sin and death are broken in us. In our inner being, the Spirit of God, who brings a life of God, brings a new ruling, a new control center that calls the shots. And when bad planes come in the way, the control center reminds us of the maneuvering so we don't collide with one another to our destruction. Friends, I love how one Bible teacher put it beautifully. You are alive even if your body is on the way to death. You are alive even if your body is on the way to death. And this is very reassuring news, especially we are when we are reminded of the passing of loved ones. We are alive even when we are on the way to death, physically speaking. Why? Because there's new life from God. Because justification comes together with regeneration. And finally, Paul in verse 11 closes with a promise. And it's a promise for the resurrection even of the body. Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now this is significant. It's a significant summary point at this, at this moment in, in, in Paul's argument because he has already been telling us that the spirit in us has already brought us life. There's a dimension, a reality in which the Spirit has already brought life to us in our inner beings. But here it's, he's also talking about what's coming ahead. What's coming ahead for our mortal bodies when the decay of the grave, when the decomposition of the grave will affect our mortal bodies. What will happen then? What will happen when death, physically speaking, collides with our bodies? Paul's point is, it's not the end. The Spirit of God, who's been working in you to regenerate you, will be working in you to resurrect you on that final day. That is amazing good news. And all this language about the Spirit of God being used by God to resurrect or to bring His people from death to life is nothing short but the fulfillment of one of the most amazing promises in the Old Testament that God gave in regards to the new covenant. In the new covenant, it's promised in Ezekiel 36 that God will pour out His Spirit upon His people to give them a new heart, 
to replace the heart of flesh, uh, of stone, and give them a heart of flesh, to cleanse them from their sins, and to cause them to obey his commandments. All that is Ezekiel 36. And then comes Ezekiel 37. A vision. A vision of dry bones that the prophet Ezekiel sees. And God asks him, Son of man, do you think these bones can ever live again? And the prophet says, you, Lord, alone know. What a wise answer. And as Ezekiel waits for the Lord to tell him what's next, the Lord tells him, go speak to these bones. And say to them, thus says the Lord. And as the prophet speaks the word of God to dry bones, he sees in this vision the bones moving, flesh growing. And then he hears a rambling. The Spirit of God comes and brings life into these bones. And God gives the explanation. He says, these, this valley of bones is my people. I'm going to resurrect them. I'm going to bring them back to life. But the end result of that is not just spiritual life. They'll come out of their graves. And the fulfillment of the new covenant promise of the Old Testament that God gave to the house of Israel is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, with whom and through whom the news about him is used by the Spirit of God to bring new life spiritually and to guarantee that that new life will be completed, finished in the resurrection from the grave. This passage, Romans 8, is the assurance that what God promised in Ezekiel 36 and 37 is fulfilled in Jesus. This is why this is such a good news. This is why we rejoice in hearing the news, no more condemnation. How so? Because the Spirit has already been given. He has brought us to life spiritually, and therefore He will make sure that we do not falter to the end, even in the grave. Even the collision with death will not bring us ultimate destruction. God promises that the Spirit who lives in us will see it to completion, to the end. Friends, the new life that God gives believers is a life that overcomes the rule of sin and death here and now and will also overcome the death of our mortal bodies beyond the grave. This is a certainty of our right standing with God. It's found in the new life from the Spirit. The condemnation is gone. The new life from the Spirit is vastly different than the old life. And this new life is certain. If you are not yet certain about this new life for you, would you come and talk to any of the pastors here? Would you come and talk to any of the members in this congregation? Don't leave this place without having the assurance, without having the certainty that you are in Christ. Because the condemnation is only certain for those who are in Christ, for those who have experienced this renewal of life that the Spirit of God brings through the act of hearing this gospel news. 
for those of us who are believers, let us remain confident in the gospel's ability to bring us new life and to focus and have our minds focus on this new life that the Spirit of God brings us so that we may live indeed in this new life by the Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what an amazing reality you have caused for us, your people, to bring about the change that we could never cause or bring about in our hearts, to give us your Holy Spirit to free us from the law of sin and death so that spiritually we have a new life already ruling in us. Father, we pray that those who are, those of us who are your people will, will live joyfully, exuberantly, confidently in this new life. And when sin knocks at, at the door of our hearts in so many ways, that we would set our minds on the new life you have already given to us. Father, for any of us this morning who still is uncertain of this new life with you, we pray that your spirit would draw them to you. Open their eyes. Give them the life that the spirit gives so they too may have the confidence of no condemnation in Jesus. We pray for that in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor, and through the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen.